Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Melissa Murray. I'm the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at New York University, and I'm a co-host of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and legal culture. I'm delighted to be here today to moderate this Good Lit program. And I'm especially pleased to be joined by New York Times columnist Charles Blow to discuss his recent book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. His work is succinct, counterintuitive, and an impassioned corrective to the myths that for too long have governed our thinking about race and geography in America. Drawing on both political observations and his own personal experiences as a Black son of the South, Charles sets out to offer a call to action through which Black people can finally achieve equality on their own terms. Please join me in welcoming Charles Blow to the Commonwealth Club. Charles, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's get right into it. Um, Your last book, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, was a memoir, and now it is perhaps improbably an opera that is enjoying rave reviews at the New York Metropolitan Opera. Um, But this more recent book takes an entirely different approach. It is self-consciously styled as a Black Power Manifesto. Before we get into the specifics of your proposal, can I ask what prompted you to write this? I don't know if there was a moment where I can say this was the moment where I decided to write this book. Um, But, you know, I spent years talking to and interviewing and writing columns about uh, families that had lost loved ones to police violence. And it it was very tiring. And it was very, it had a psychological, spiritual toll that it takes on me. And I wasn't the person losing the family member, but just being in such close proximity, seeing it up close, uh, and I, you know, so so that part of me just said, this can't be a thing. You know, we can't have a sorority of sorrow among all these women who talk to each other all the time because there's so many of them. Um, and, you know, you know, I had heard um, Cara Belafonte at a speech he gave at the Ford Foundation years ago saying, you know, we're the revolutionary thinkers. And that has that stuck with me because I kept thinking, you know, maybe I'm not being uh, uh, provocative enough or maybe I'm not thinking big, you know, big enough about what I'm doing here and what I have a platform that's really big. And am I using it well enough? Um, and, you know, I remember that this this idea of, young white hippies moving to Vermont came into my consciousness around the time that a book was published about it. And I, I, I wish I could remember the name of the author because I'd like to give the author's credit, but I don't remember her name right now. Um, but she wrote about how, you know, this thing had started just as some college kids at Yale, uh, who in a, in a Yale Law Review wrote a, th- wrote a kind of manifesto that basically said, if you want a real power, you have to take over state because the states have a lot of the power. And another writer, more prominent writer, picked it up, wrote it in Playboy, take over Vermont. And all these young white kids packed up their things and moved to Vermont. And, And it was enough. It wasn't enough to take over the state, but it was enough to, to inject enough young energy into the state that they completely change it you know, make it this liberal bastion. They basically change it from Vermont into, into uh, from, from New Hampshire into Vermont. And so I thought, 
how brilliant is that? There's nothing preventing you from doing this. You can decide that you want access to state power and you can just move wherever you want if that if you're so inclined. And I thought like, and black people have already done this before. We we've, we've packed up in mass and moved somewhere. And right now, the reverse migration is already on the way. They're already packing up in mass and moving back south, not at the same levels and numbers, but they're doing it. And I thought, what if we could just juice that a little bit and replicate what these young white kids did in Vermont? So let me first say, as a graduate of Yale Law School, I love the idea that you can write something in the Yale Law Journal, and but it doesn't actually get play until Playboy publishes it, which seems exactly on track. Um, but Everyone but who writes the Playboy reads the like, Yale Law Review. I, mean, I, I think there's <laughs> the Venn diagrams definitely overlap in some dimension, I can confirm. Um, but you've already hit on sort of one important aspect of your manifesto. You are looking at the Great Migration, this massive historical influx of African-Americans from the South into Northern and Western cities. It was chronicled by Isabel Wilkerson in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns, and has received tons of attention. Um, but as you note, the reception that many African-Americans found when they left the South for the North and the West was not what the hippies found when they decided to repopulate Vermont. Um, it has not led to the kind of consolidation of political power that we saw in Vermont. And so you propose instead that rather than continuing to invest in these destination cities where we have gone, but have not necessarily been welcomed and instead of actually replicated and exacerbated some of the problems we were fleeing in the South, the time has come to pull up stakes and go back home, return to the South, to what is essentially an African-American homeland and put down roots there. And so you are very specific here. It's not just anywhere in the South. You have a specific geographical line that you think is really important. So can you highlight what exactly this proposal is for re-migrating to the South and establishing a base of Black political power there? Absolutely. So at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. Another three were within two percentage points of being majority Black. Florida was within four percentage points of being majority Black. So if, you know... There's a bunch, a, a bunch of very, very big ifs. But if black people had not migrated, and we know why they did, and, and if you had still gotten the Voting Rights Act, and if you know people voted pretty much the same way they do now, politics would look completely different. You know, you could you could have black people being either the majority controlling interest or the lead part of coalitions that control up to ninety. Electoral votes. That would be more than California and New York State combined. You, if they voted the same way that they vote now, you wouldn't have had a, a Republican governor, I'm sorry, Republican president for the last, well, uh, maybe Reagan, for the last 50 years. Uh, and that would completely have changed the complexion of the Supreme Court. State power is incredibly important in a place called the United States. It's called the United States for a reason, because half of the power is reserved for the states. In fact, the Constitution says that any power that they did not even delineate in the Constitution is reserved for the states. If we didn't write it down, that's, that's for the states. And so a lot of the things that black people care the most about when they, when you talk to the, uh, when they answer surveys, criminal justice, largely a state issue. Uh, mass incarceration, most of the prisoners in America are held at the state and local level, not at the federal level. Uh, if you look at education, a lot of that policy is directed at the state level and a lot of financing come from the states. 
uh, health policy, a lot of that comes from state on the state level. So it's just across the board, you have to have control of states in order to be able to to really affect change on on the things that black people care about. And, I, you know, in, in, in the best of all worlds, we wouldn't need to have uh, uh, try to make a move where we try to consolidate power in the state. But that world doesn't exist because we have, for the last 90 years, every state in America has been majority white except Hawaii. And yet we still haven't, it still hasn't worked. It still hasn't worked. And so I'm trying to figure out what is the way that we can have a state architecture of power that is not, does not bow to or is in fact governed by white supremacy. And so your response then is to basically recreate the conditions of the postbellum period, that brief sliver of time after the Civil War, where there were a number of states in the South that actually had Black majorities or close to Black majorities and where Blacks could exercise considerable political power. They had enormous political power. Uh, the, the, the voting population of Mississippi was overwhelmingly Black. It was 6% Black and 40% White. In, in 1870, which was the first election after the end of the Civil War in South Carolina, black Republicans won three of the four congressional seats. Like, they had incredible power. And that's what freaked everybody out. So with that in mind, um, recognizing that the spate of racial violence that we saw in the redemption period that in turn prompts the massive migration of African-Americans from the South to the North and the West is a response to the fears of political consolidation and an expression of Black power. What's to say that we won't see a similar kind of retrenchment if African-Americans take up your call to return? from these destinations. The question is, when have Black people not experienced racial violence and terror? When Black people moved in the first wave of the Great Migration, it began in 1916. In 1919 was Red Summer, which was a direct response to Black people moving to the North and West into those cities. And it happened in those Northern and Western cities to a large degree. So... All fair. So I, I'm with you on this history, but I am also a black woman who has spent, who, who fled the South as a high school student. I grew up in Florida and immediately left for college and never went back, like have lived mm-hmm. in destination cities for my entire life. What mm-hmm. is it about the destination city that one is so appealing, but also is a little bit crippling for African-Americans? Like what is the allure of the destination, the destination cities in the North or the destination cities back in the South? I'm well, the destination cities in the north and the west that we have fled to, and, and why don't the attractions of those cities actually cash out for us? Well, I mean, I think black people moved for a promise, and also black people were running from terror in the south uh, uh, to a large degree, but they were, you know, it was push-pull. So they were running from terror, but they were already run, also running towards economic possibility and freedoms and all sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, some of that was very real and, turn, and worked out well. If you look at data on descendants of people who moved to great, uh, during the Great Migration to these northern western cities, there's slightly higher income levels for those families, slightly higher educational levels, but there were also negatives. The, the, the death rates were, uh, the, were higher because they just, it was vices. When people smoked and drank themselves to death when they got away from the church, you know, whatever. So they, there was all those things. It was a mix. Uh, the problem, though, is that is something that Martin Luther King expressed uh, uh, during the, ni- the late 1960s when they were having a rash of 
riots in those northern and western cities, which was the very reality that the that the civil rights movement had essentially been a regional movement. And the benefits have redounded to the people in the South. Mm-hmm. And people outside of the South looked at this change for Black people and realized it wasn't happening for them. And in fact, not only were it not happening for them, their housing conditions were getting worse. Their schooling was getting worse. And so you saw an outcry. Basically, it was both because of the condition, but also like to see progress somewhere and know that you are not, you don't have access to progress where you are was the response. And I don't think that we have really seen a, an appreciable change in the conditions of black people in those northern and western cities since 1970. You know, they're, they're, we see a rising amount of income inequality, including within the black community. So you have a lot of black people in those cities who do really well. But there's just throngs and throngs and throngs who are basically forgotten about, you know, uh, and we think we can kind of throw money at these, you know, philanthropy and we can do sort of another social program. We can give out another handout. That's not how you solve that issue because that issue is rooted in a white supremacy and an anti-blackness. And until you deal with that, you can't solve that. You can only solve your guilt. Right? You can only solve your feelings of feeling bad about it, but it doesn't solve the underlying problem. And I think that a lot of young people now have gotten to the point where they're just like, I'm done with this. And that's what we're seeing. Well, so, so, okay, so there is a paradox here to, to a certain degree. Um, these African-Americans during the Great Migration flee to these northern and western cities hoping for the promise of something better. And in fact, it turns out that what they left behind is what actually realizes that promise. Maybe not as widespread as they would like, but certainly more gains. And one of the things you note in the, in the book that I, I don't think gets as much attention in, in the narrative is one of the reasons why the South is able to consolidate some of the gains of the civil rights movement is because even though there is integration, there is still very much a, a stronghold of social segregation. So they still have their own educational institutions. And, and you talk specifically about historically black colleges and universities literally dotting the South and, and not being present anywhere in the North and, and the West. And they have their own communities where they are buying from each other, they are supporting each other. And so even as integration becomes more of an ideal, there is still a kind of social and economic and educational segregation that redounds to the benefit of African Americans in the South. And that just isn't present in the North. And so in a weird way, what you are asking for is for black people to return to the South to reap the benefits of their own self-imposed segregation. Well, I think you should add to that political power, meaning Mm -hmm. there are 1200 majority black cities in America. 90% of them are in the American South. 90% of those majority black cities are in the American South. The municipal South is largely black. And that changes. So, I mean, part of the discussion you have to have when you're talking about North and South is that both change over the last uh, century dramatically. The, the municipal South becomes Black, and the North changes in its own, in its own ways. And so th- those changes kind of fight against our, cons- our uh, 
conceptions of what the South and the North are, because either they're stuck in this period right after the Civil War, or they're stuck in the Civil Rights Movement. But no, they keep changing. And so now, you know, with, with these cities having all this Black power in them, there's now even more safe space for you to exist in an urban South where the mayor is Black and the, and the police chief is Black and the fire chief is Black. So let's back up a minute. So you are painting a quite rosy picture of the South. And as someone who is from the South and has family members in the South, it doesn't always map on to what I see when I go and visit friends and family. So what are you seeing? And to be very clear, you've actually made this reverse migration. You left your toehold in the Black intelligentsia in New York, and you've gone back to Atlanta where you found this kind of idyllic black existence that you want for other people. So what have you found? I, don't, I, won't, say, I won't use the word idyllic. I don't, I don't, I, I'd stay away okay. from the, I will stay away from, from terminology like that. And also there's no such thing as a utopia in America. So understand okay. that. So the, the problems that plague the human condition will plague it no matter where, it, where those human beings exist. It will just follow you. If, if racial majorities meant racial utopia, then there are, Seven states right now where the white population is 90% of the population. Surely all those white people are doing just fine. Everybody's wealthy. There's no crime. There's no hunger. No, that's not true. Because it, racial majorities does not, do not produce utopia. However, in the aggregate, li not living under white supremacy will be better for black people than living under it. And that is the argument that I make. Well, I mean, this seems really counterintuitive. The idea of the South as being freed from the specter of white supremacy and the North and the West being irredeemably burdened by it. I don't think, I don't think it is freed so far because what the, 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 the point of the book is, is the access to state power. Black people don't have it anywhere. There's not a single state. Not only that, I mean, black people, people are they're more likely to get it in the South. You're, you're, <laughs> you, can, you can have it. Mississippi is 40% plus black right now. You know, it takes a couple hundred thousand people to make Mississippi a majority black state. Uh, uh, Delaware is the eighth blackest state in America. It's tiny. Right? You, you, the math just, you already have a running start at this in southern states in a way that you do not have it in any other state in this country. Uh, there is not a single majority black city in all of California. There is only one majority black city in the entire state of New York, which is Yonkers. You don't have a shot, but you do in Georgia and you do in Mississippi, you do in Louisiana. But then you also have to live in Mississippi and Louisiana and Georgia. So tell us what it's like to live there, especially given that we're sort of laboring under this view of the South as backwards and parochial and a place that is still rife with endemic racial violence. Okay. Uh, I think I, my, you know, my argument is also that racial violence is everywhere in America, and I see that expressed in police departments in LA and San Francisco and New York and Chicago and Detroit. So, I mean, I, I, the racial violence part of it, I'm just like, there's no place that you can go in America and not face some of that. Uh, but I, I take your point about uh, trying to figure out what is the draw. What, so I, one thing, you know, there's the economic side of it. If you look at the, the places where Forbes says black middle class is thriving, that list is dominated by Southern cities. Uh, 
if you look at the places where uh, uh, they have the largest share of Black-owned businesses, that is the Southeast portion of the United States. So there are just economic, if you look at home ownership rates, the South does incredibly well there. If you look at a ton of metrics, the South measures up incredibly well for Black people. Uh, In addition to that, you know, the the municipal Blackness of the South is not a small thing because it doesn't mean that you won't have any police violence, but it does mean that that violence is not the same caliber as it is in a place like New York. There was no stop and frisk in Jackson, Mississippi. That was not a thing, but it was in New York and it was exported to Chicago and to L.A., you know, the, the SWAT team was started in, in, in Oakland, basically, to combat the, the Black Panthers. That militarization of policing, that is largely a northern western city phenomenon. You know, and so it, is, it feels different to be in these spaces where you know that the mayor looks like you and the police chief looks like you. In addition to that, I think culturally, when I was young, all of the culture seemed to be coming out of northern and western cities. You know, everything I saw on TV was good times in Chicago and the Jeffersons in New York and Sanford and Son in California. But that's not what hap- was happening now for young people. They see the blackness of the South. They see the largest music festival for black people, black music festival in the country. That's the Essence Festival. It happens in New Orleans. They see the largest black Sporting events in America, the Bayou Classic between Grambling and Southern happens in New Orleans. They see you know, uh, tons and tons of uh, uh, reality TV, and a lot of it is coming out of Atlanta. And Tyler Perry just built this enormous studio right outside of uh, Atlanta. And so you see now movie projects that center their stories in southern cities rather than in northern cities. And so for them, they don't have the baggage that I have. They don't have a memory of the South as the big bad boogeyman. What they have is a memory of Tamir Rice laying in the park in Cleveland. They have a memory of George Floyd on a park on, on, the, on the pavement in a northern and western city. Those are the memories that these kids have. They also have the memory of Ahmaud Arbery and Walter Scott. So, I mean, are we idealizing the South to a degree? I don't think so. What What the police shooting data shows us is that there is no geography to it. That it's everywhere. It's just that the the majority of the the high profile ones, profile ones, were in the North and the West. The majority of them. So if we take your proposal seriously, there is this reverse migration from these destination cities in the North and the West back to the South. And you specifically identify a string of cities along a highway corridor that begins in Louisiana and ends in Delaware. So you've left out major parts of the South. Like you're not interested in Texas. Like the, the, the prospect of political consolidation does not exist there. It exists in this sort of necklace of cities along this highway corridor. Um, one of the things you note as proof of concept is the enormous success that Stacey Abrams had with her new Georgia coalition um, in the course of the November 2020 election. And your point is, if all we had was just what was in Atlanta in that period of time, and we were able to basically flip Georgia blue and take two Senate thing, seats 
Imagine what could be done if there was a concerted effort to actually bring back Black people back to Atlanta. But Cece Abrams also notes here that high voter participation, like the sort that she engendered in Atlanta and Georgia, means that more people are willing to try to vote, to change the political calculus. But it doesn't mean that they will necessarily succeed. And she's noted that in the face of that record voter participation, especially record Black voter participation, we have seen outsized efforts to again suppress the vote. So What's to say that we don't all come back to the South and instead what we are met with is not the racial violence of the redemption period, but instead the kind of political violence that keeps people from the ballot boxes, that changes the laws that empower state legislatures so that we cannot exercise the franchise in a way that helps us consolidate political power. What's to say that this all doesn't blow up spectacularly in another sort of response and reaction to the fears of Black power? Well, I'll say two things to that. Number one, that I'm proposing, what I'm proposing is a revolutionary act. There's no such thing as a revolution without resistance. So if everybody thinks it's going to be easy, then stay where you are. Because it's not going to be easy. And no one ever is going to tra- is gonna hand over power just because somebody shows up and says that we now we deserve it. So that's not going to happen. You're going to see massive resistance, which is what you saw the first time that Black people all of, out of the blue had majorities in these cities. Massive resistance. You're always going to have massive resistance when you are on the precipice, on the verge of getting uh, massive Black power in this country. So either you have to decide whether you want it or not. There's there's some meaningful differences here. So again, let me push back as a lawyer who talks and thinks about the Supreme Court um, entirely too much. In the 1960s, when this kind of power is being consolidated in the South, you actually had a court that was somewhat receptive to it, or at least willing to uphold some of the legislative gains that produced and fueled the consolidation of Black power in those places. Now we have a Supreme Court that I think it is fair to say is absolutely hostile to the prospect of minority rights, especially in the political arena. Where are the bulwarks that are going to keep this train on the tracks um, when it inevitably meets the resistance that we all understand is going to come? The, 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 the resistance met Stacey Abrams when she was running for governor, and they purged hundreds of thousands of people from the ballot. But they did, did they give up? Because they... they She's they, also they, not the governor no, 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 of let, Georgia. Let, that's what I'm saying. But when, then when she was not, did not become a governor of Georgia because of massive intrusion into that political system by partisans who did not want that black woman to be president, to be governor, did she give up? No. What happened was she and others energized the black community to overcome what they were doing. And that is exactly what happened in the last election. So what, what I'm saying is, you don't have a choice. I mean, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's sometimes cute when I hear people think, talk like they have a choice. You actually don't have a choice. Either you're going to have state access to state power, or you're not going to have it. You can choose not to have it and have fewer fights. That is fine. Listen, I want state power as much as the next guy. Like I, I too want to live in a world where we are free of racism and discrimination, or at least um, a less thick version of it. 
But I also recognize that the condi- the background conditions right now, the institutional conditions are probably worse than they ever have been. And so it is true. Not worse than Reconstruction, the, the end of Reconstruction. But well, yes. well, this court, I think, is as conservative as the Reconstruction era court. So, you know, maybe that's just a wash. But I, I don't think we have seen a court this conservative in at least two generations. And again, given everything that will have to be overcome, one of the things we at least could count on before in consolidating Black power, making majority minority voting districts was the court blessing some of these legislative programs. Now we don't have a Congress pushing through anything because they are so crippled by polarization. And we have a court that has basically been weaponized for minority interests, not our minority, but like the minority political interests. And so where are the guardrails for this? And so it is true that Stacey Abrams can just keep throwing people back in the churn to to get the outcome. But after a while, you can't come up against these institutional constraints without buckling in some way. So what's the safeguard? Well, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is something different, which is that I still find the Constitution itself to be the safeguard, meaning you can, you can um, gerrymander districts, mm-hmm. but there are statewide races that you can't gerrymander. Now, now your only option is to try to reduce the number of people who can vote, and that has limits. There are limits on that in ways that, that the courts have said are, are legitimate. You can say, you know, we, don't, we want voter IDs in this way, and, and they are disproportionately affect certain people. And we see that happening all the time. But that was in effect here in Georgia, too, you know, in the last election. Those, at a certain point, you have to overcome it, and then... What you get on a statewide level is a governor who has veto power. So now, you have, now you're kicking into real power. Now, the second thing you get is the ability to elect senators so we don't have this mess that we have in Washington right now. If you had two more senators from another southern state that were elected by black people, you wouldn't be running to Joe Manchin begging him to deal, do something about voting rights. Until you have that kind of statewide power, you are out of luck. You are begging other people to be benevolent. Well, it seems like one way to sort of get at this question, like the senators, I think is a completely convincing argument. And certainly the idea that that's the game to this is is a really compelling one. But why not simply sort of double down on efforts to make D.C. and Puerto Rico, again, two majority minority strongholds into states so that you actually could get some of this done? Why have this reverse migration when we could actually devote considerable political capital and energy to that particular class, which is quite specific, but likely to yield much of the same outcomes. The best way to get D.C. and Puerto Rico to become states is to send 10 to 12 to 14 senators to the Senate who are elected by Black people. That is fair enough. I mean, so again, if this if we all go back down there, and we consolidate our power, and then I don't know. I think just half, just half. You can, half of everybody can stay. Just we all you, don't have to go. You know, all don't have to go. We're not okay. kicking. We're not dragging everybody. Some folks can stay in Oakland. Fair enough. All right, but like you, so you are convinced that this is this is what will do it. Just consolidating power in the South and being able to sort of steer, and also you know, and I think this is actually a brilliant part of it. You can make the majority political parties more responsive 
to your community's yeah. needs. If, and again, this is the perennial complaint about Black people and the Democratic Party. Like we show up in record numbers and the party is not necessarily receptive or responsive to what we are interested in. And, and so this is a way to sort of curb that or at least address that. We've seen this kind of proposal before. So in the 1920s, the Black communists talked about the Black Belt Nation, a similar kind of idea, not quite as refined mm -hmm. as yours. And in the mm -hmm. 1960s, um, Black communists offered this idea of a new Republic of Africa that, again, yeah. was about consolidating power. Why didn't it work then? And why do you think it could work now? Well, in both those cases, one was at the beginning of the Great Migration, one was right at the end of it. All of the Black energy and movement was directing itself away from the South. So their timing was off. Right now, the Black energy and movement and migration in the country is already moving back to the South. It just needs a moral adrenaline boost. So did the pandemic sort of spur this, like people just sort of having more wherewithal with their jobs to be able to work wherever they liked and making a decision that it is in their economic interest to live somewhere with a lower cost of living, maybe a larger black community. And they wound up heading out to Houston or Atlanta or some of these other places. And, and like, instead now we can capitalize on this sort of catalyst and make this an even more pronounced shift. You know, it could be contributing, but the reverse migration has likely been happening since the 1970s. It has shown up significantly in the data for like the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, I do believe, you know, the, the reason that Black people migrated in the first place, the push part of it was the racial terror, which we know, but also it was also economic collapse. The, the bull weaver infestation made the cotton uh, economy collapse. And that's where a lot of these people made their living. And so at the very same time that their economy was collapsing, a lot of young white men in the North and Western who would have otherwise been in factories were away fighting the First World War. And so those factories still needed bodies. They sent recruiters down. They said, hey, we have jobs. And these people said, well, we don't have a job anymore because the was ate our cotton. And so they left. You know, both things worked in tandem. Because what is important to remember is that for 60 years after the Civil War, black people stayed in the South, 50 years. 56 years, they stayed through the lynching, they stayed through the terror, and it was just that economic collapse that made people, it was a shock to the, to the system, and it made people say, you know what, why not? I think that that could happen with the pandemic, I just don't know, and I don't think any of us will know until we get far enough out for people to be able to look at data and see what happened. Um. Speaking of the pandemic and what we saw during the pandemic, um, we saw perhaps the most pronounced outpouring of public attention and outrage over racial violence in the summer of 2020. Um, but you're, you're somewhat critical of this sort of protest politics in the book. Um, at one point, you note that this particular outpouring of outrage seemed to have been prompted by a kind of cabin fever racial consciousness. Like we were all stuck in the house trying to avoid COVID and, and, and were forced in, to be confronted with these images of racial violence. And, and that is what catalyzed this incredible outpouring of interest in the question of racial justice. Um, is there a place for protest politics in your manifesto, or is this really just a question of numbers and consolidating political power? Is there any room for the kind of emotional outcry that we saw around George Floyd? 
in the in the best of all words, you wouldn't need the outcry. Right? Pro, protesting is not necessarily uh, a demonstration of power. It is underscoring a lack of power because what you're doing is appealing to and demanding of actual power to respond to you. Because if you had the power, you wouldn't have the protest. You just do it. If you actually had the power to change the criminal justice, you just do it. You don't. So you have to put pressure on the people who do. Right? So you, what I'm challenging people to do is imagine a world in which you actually have the power. Right, so the protest in this telling is not actually an expression of anything useful, but rather symptomatic of the broader political malaise. Like you don't have power. I, 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 think, I think protests are great for bringing people together. They, there's a common energy. People realize they're not alone in their thoughts. They commune. There's a lot that happens in protests uh, that I think is positive for people to see. You know, uh, it's one thing to have it show up in a poll, but to see a, a poll of people using their feet in the street is a different kind of thing. But it is kind of an emotional, spiritual kind of a thing. It is not necessarily how power changes even. You know, I, I always point to the, the Montgomery bus boycott. They were protesting straight through two hot summers. And Montgomery wasn't budging. Because power doesn't have to give. You can be righteous. It can be a beautiful demonstration. But power doesn't have to give because it will wait you out, which is exactly what has happened here. You know, Montgomery, that didn't change until the Supreme Court ruling that said you can't do this. And then then they said, okay, fine. But no one was going to budge. Right? What they have done with with the the son of summer of protests after George Floyd was they just waited you out. All that talk about defund the police, they waited you out, let the crime rate tick up a little bit, and they started to refund those police at higher levels than before. All of the Democrats started to say, the Democratic leaders said, oh, that's going to cost us, that cost us votes. We can't even talk about that. We can't even bring up the idea of defunding the police. We can't use that phrase. They waited you out until the, the passions died because power doesn't have to do anything. So if power is the luxury of just being able to wait out your opponents, one argument that I think those who believe in protest politics would launch is, at the very least, what protests do, as you say, is to bring people together. And that Absolutely. can perhaps foster opportunities for cross-racial coalition building on some of these issues. And I get the sense in the book that you are a little dismissive of the promise and potential of cross-racial coalitions and, and that what you are hoping for is not simply a consolidation of Black power in the South, but like a for us, by us kind of movement that does not require white people or anyone else for that matter at all. Absolutely. You know, I, 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 it is, and it is not just a feeling. I just look at data. You know, if I, I ask the people who maintain the uh, 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 implicit bias project, they've done you know, hundreds of thousands of these implicit bias, racial implicit bias tests. They measure one thing on the racial part of it, pro-white, anti-black bias. What they found was everyone had a majority, every racial group, majority pro-white, anti-black bias. Even a third of black people had a pro-white, anti-black bias. So that's not my feeling about it. 
That's what the data say about how people actually believe what they actually believe on the core of them, not what they say to me. When I look at the data on how people actually vote in 2016, a third of Hispanics and a third of Asians all voted for Donald Trump. That was after he said the Mexicans were all rapists. That was after he said Islam hates us. After all of it, they still. And then in this last election, still voted for him after all that he had done for those four years. And what the New York Times analysis found was that his uh, support actually surged in immigrant communities. That has nothing to do with my feeling. I look at the data. So what the data shows me is that there are limits to coalitions. What the data show me is that that, that white supremacy can be aspirational, even for people who are not white. What the data shows me is that that anti-blackness is an infection that, that, that is problematic throughout the world because it is hard to find a society outside of Africa where people look differently and the darker people are not assigned the lower caste. So it has to, I, I always say, take me out of it. It's not about how I feel about it. It's about what the data show me. And so the idea of cross-racial coalitions, um, we may not even dismantle white supremacy and, in fact, may generate a kind of light supremacy. Yeah. I, that, that's, I, I worry significantly about that. So if I look out to you know, uh, 2055, Hispanics will be twice the population of black people. For the very first time, Asian will be more, there'll be more Asians in America than black people. That's, in general, perfectly fine, great, make the country uh, uh, more of a melting pot of different faces. That's great. But if you continue to vote a third of you for uh, someone who is an, a, 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 out, an out racist, then just by the numbers, twice the population plus another people who do another group of people who are more than the black population, just the 30% of you are voting for the racist is more than all the black voters. So if you take these demographic trends seriously, um, it's not simply that we are sort of changing in terms of the demographic character of the country. We we may actually be creating uh, like entirely new classes of individuals who see themselves as superior to African-Americans. And that suggests that it's kind of go time for this manifesto. Like it's now or now. Either it happens now or never. Uh, you know, in the in 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 the next uh, few decades, seven southwestern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority brown and minority 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 Hispanic. They can send whoever they want to the Senate if they decide to vote as a block, and they should. Hawaii will remain min- majority uh, Asian South Pacific Islander. They should send whoever they want, and they should. The Rockies, down, Oregon, down into the Rockies, will remain majority white. They can say whoever they want, and they should. The, many of the states are on the East Coast will either be some, some combination of majority white, majority minority. There's not a single state on that map, no matter how far you go out, where you're projected to have a state that's majority black. Now, you can say that's okay with you. And if you say, then don't listen to what I'm saying. But if you think that black people should also be into this prospect of having a state where they control the, the state politics, then you need to, you have to do something. That is, it's that simple. So 
we could go on about this, um, but the chat is literally filling up with questions from the audience. So I want to make sure that they have their voices heard as well. Um, so I, I think I already know the answer to this one, but I'd like to hear it in your words. Um, one listener notes that in your book, you include a quote from Whitney Young about the definition of Black power. In your view, what's the most important aspect of Black power? Well, I, I think self-determination. Is, is what I am after. And when, when I say black power, I just want the power to get rid of the architecture of anti-blackness and white supremacy. I don't need the black people to elect every person who gets elected to be black. I just need you to be accountable to black people as you are accountable to everybody else today. And we don't have that kind of accountability because we can't deliver a state and not until Georgia did it in 2020. Uh, we can't deliver a state. Uh, and it makes, you, it makes you weak politically. People don't have to respond to you. Let, let me push back on, on that a little bit. Um, so the political power, the self-determination, um, how does this all sort of fit into a milieu in which we are constantly thinking in terms of racial progress? And a couple of listeners have asked questions that sort of mine this same vein. So one says, you talk about the word progress and how elusive it really means, especially when it comes to systemic racism that is basically entrenched and baked into the system at this point. Um, they'd like to know a little bit more about how your proposal and the achievement of some measure of Black self-determination and political power will lead to greater strides in what you understand to be racial progress and what I think I would understand as a dismantling of that kind of systemic racism. What, what does racial progress mean? Well, I think they're. I think they'd like to know what you think about it. I think I would say that you. I'm always, I'm always mystified by this idea of racial progress. Well, I think they're mystified <laughs> by your mystification. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand what it means. So, people very often, what I think people uh, mean when they say that is harmony, right? Mm -hmm. The lack of conflict and the lack of you know, they basically convert silence into progress. As long as I'm not yelling and screaming about my oppression, that seems to also too often translate into what people perceive to be harmony. Right? So my, my, I don't, I just want to not be oppressed. Now you call that what you want to call it. And I don't need to, I don't need, I don't need to be around any group, different group of people that order to do it. If you're around me and I'm not oppressed, great. If you're not around me and I'm not oppressed, great. I just don't want to be oppressed. Can you make that happen for me? I've lived in your city for 25 years. I've lived uh, in your northern cities for 90 years. Uh, you know, that the rear migration happened a century ago. Now I've lived there for a century. Why hasn't that been able to, to happen? Where, what does progress mean? You people inching their way out of darkness, undoing a thing that should never have been done, and we're supposed to wait and applaud because you make a you move an inch this year, or two inches next year, or a foot the next year, when it should never have been done in the first place. I'm sorry, I I don't have an unlimited number of years to exist on the planet. My children cannot be fighting the same battle that I fought. That I'm fighting the same battle that my mother fought. That she fought the same battle that her grandmother fought. What does this progress, I don't understand the progress terminology, that, that phrasing, how people use language around progress, racial progress, as if 
because it very often sounds to me like you're, you're saying, when I am quiet, when I am singing, don't worry, be happy, you think that that is racial progress, even though the yeah. systems and the structures have not changed. So I like the whole idea of a Bobby McFerrin account of racial progress and instead preferring something that is really about dismantling systemic racism. Um, one of the listeners relates this to the question of historically black colleges and universities. And I, I think this person, like yourself, is perhaps an alumnus of Grambling State in Louisiana. And I think history, I'm thinking specifically of my own generation, like my father went to Howard University and when it was time for me to go to college, he was very adamant that I didn't have to look at HBCUs because we had made racial progress and there were a wide range of places available to me. And I ultimately wound up going to the University of Virginia, a school that would not have admitted my parents um, under any circumstances when they were applying to college. Um, now, though, I think the pendulum has swung back. And again, for a lot of the reasons that you suggest that despite the sort of integrative ideal, our children are not necessarily finding these predominantly white institutions to be spaces that are centered or organized around them. And so, again, in the interest of not being oppressed, of not grappling every day with that kind of systemic racism, Many of them are doing what you did, which is to turn to the HBCUs, which also, I think, drives them back to the South. So can you say a little bit about the force of that logic and the idea of like sort of going back to an institution that is predominantly minority is its own form of progress? Well, I, I think we have to recognize in that longing the, the humanity in it, which is who wouldn't want to not live in trauma? And a lot of these young people feel like they are living in trauma when they have to be the one and only in the class and the one or the three or four, and they barely see anybody who looks like them when they walk across campus and they have to form a black student union because they don't feel comfortable in the regular student union. They have to, they have to form a black housing uh, 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 situations so that they can at least debrief and breathe at night and not have to suffer what they feel like it's suffering. I've talked to a lot of these schools. They feel like it's suffering. And, I'm, and I look at them like, why would you do this? <laughs> why? Like, you're young and brilliant. Like, people should be fighting to be in your presence rather than you fighting to feel like you belong in theirs. Like, I don't understand it. And my own kids went through this, and I thought, what did I just do? Sure. It, it, and, and I still think about it, and I, I have misgivings about, you know, they went to uh, very racially mixed school, but it just kept getting whiter and whiter and whiter the whole time they were there because the neighborhood got gentrifying. I thought we were just signing up to this, Everybody goes to this school and nobody cares about anything. And that, it just didn't work out that way. This is in Brooklyn. This in Brooklyn. is in Brooklyn. And then we, you know, I was a single dad and, you know, New York City schools are just a mess. So the twins were going to middle school and the oldest one was going to high school. And all that I was worried about is you don't have any control over which school they select. They, you know, you take all the tests and they start placing and I'm thinking, oh, my, I could have three children sprinkled across New York. How in the hell can I pick these children up after school, let alone, I'm not letting them on a train across Brooklyn at 11 years old. Like, so I ended up 
trying to find private schools just because there's no way I could do it. And then I just thought, what did I just do? I'm on the parents of color committee because we had to have a separate co- parenting committee. And they had, you know, prep school Negro was a movie we had to watch, you know, because it, what? Like it, my brain as a person who grew up in a majority of black time went to a school that was founded as a right in the wake of the Civil War to educate the kids, uh, formerly enslaved people. And that still sits on that spot of earth to this day. I just, it just was beyond me. And I had never even thought that like race was, was removed from my educational environments, from all of my educational experience. That black school to a predominantly black college. So, you know, if you ran for freshman class president and you lost, it's not because you're black. Everybody's black. We don't like you. Like, that's, that's what it was. So you remove that and people could just breathe and they came out of that. I felt like I came out of it stronger. May, I may not have the greatest education. Nobody on my, the faculty might have won a Nobel Peace Prize, but everybody on the faculty encouraged me to do everything I could imagine. If I could dream it up, they would encourage me to do it. And that had, it, had its own value later in my life. And to see my kids struggle with identity and feeling like they belonged was hard to watch. And so now I can understand young people wanting not to have that be their entire educational experience. But it also seems like it's not simply about the educational experience, but about this larger ideal that um, banding together as a community um, creates a kind of self-endorsing kind of mechanism that would be good for Black people as opposed to being sprinkled about in society more generally. I mean, again, this goes back to your proposal. Head back and Moss create something together in much the same way that people did. Like the, the fact of your self-segregation is not necessarily regressive. In fact, it can actually be quite progressive in some dimension. Anyone who's ever gone to a girl's school or a boy's school understands it's the very same, exact same principle. No, um, my husband went to Morehouse, um, a boy's school that, or excuse me, a man's school that also has the same HBCU mission. Um, As one of the things I was actually very curious about in the book, um, in our final couple of minutes is you seem pretty disdainful of contemporary Black intellectuals who, as you say, deliver beautiful meditations and blistering orations, but don't actually get much done beyond ingratiating themselves to a self-flagellating white audience. So one, name some names. Um, you yeah. mentioned... <laughs> no. I, 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 would, I want you to spill the tea on this. You, you know the dis- divide between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Who's the contemporary analog of this pair? I don't know if, the, I, don't know if I know the analogs, but I will say, you know, there's a, a tremendous market. A tremendous, a lot of people have gotten rich, you know, making white liberals feel guilty, being the black whisperer, you know, and I didn't want to be part of that. That's not my thing. I don't, I, I recognize what it is. I understand that there's money to be made there. I see people making it. I don't want that money. I'm not interested in your guilt. I'm not interested, you know, uh, and it's also just, you know, uh, 
spitting in the mud. It's just, it is, oh, I found another phrase, another catch word that I can use to describe the thing that somebody else described 200 years ago. I don't understand what the, the constant enlightenment, the cyclical enlightenment does. Oh, this person, oh, that's so clever. They added a different context to the same thing that somebody's been writing. Those books have existed forever. I need a solution. And it, it doesn't run through white people's guilt. In your work, you have never been afraid to call people out and, and to speak truth to power. And I think that's part of the reason why this Black Power Manifesto um, feels so pressing, because the urgency of your writing is just visible on the page. Like, as we said before, in your view, it is go time. Like, it's either now or never. And, and so it is really an amazing kind of prospect to sort of think about the radical potential of doing something like going back, like something that seems almost like regressive, a step backwards, but in your view could actually be quite promising and open up whole new avenues for Black people because it comes with an opportunity for political power. Um, in our final couple of minutes, um, let's shift to something, like end on a high note, if you will. One of our listeners loves Fire Shut Up in My Bones, thinks it's a lovely and amazing coming of age memoir and, and speaks to so many themes about what it means to be a Black man and what Black masculinity means in America. And this listener would like to know, what is it like to see your work on stage and turned into an opera, a form of art that hasn't always been super receptive to the prospect of Black art, with the exception of Porgy and Bess? I like to um, appreciate it as another art that something that uh, a creation of Terrence and uh, uh, Cassie and Camille, the choreographer. But, you know, um, it, it is also important to for people to understand that I lived, that's my life. It's not a story I made up. So that's my life. I lived it. It was traumatic and lonely and um, hurtful, and I buried it, and I wrote about it in my 40s. I dug it up and wrote about it and uh, because I thought it would be helpful to other people, other kids who were experiencing the same thing that I did, and then I buried it again, and then they dug it up, and they made an opera about it, and then I dug it up again, and they made uh, brought it to the Met. But for me... It is very difficult and uncomfortable to stay in that. You know, part of me psychologically needs it to stay buried. Um, and so I can appreciate it as a piece of art. And I hope that it is helpful for other people to see, particularly people who have struggled with the same things on a stage and just know that they are seen. But I can't stay in it. Um, you know, I, I went to the opening. I went to the opening in, in um, uh, St. Louis when they first commissioned it, and I didn't go back because yeah. I know this story, and it's and it is not the most comfortable thing to see it dug up again and see it on a stage. So, given that it seems unlikely then that um, the Black Power Manifesto is going to make it to the opera stage. Um, although like, I think the circumstances of that retreatment might be quite different. Hey, I can hear the songs now. <laughs> <laughs> all involved 
fists, all involved fists. But what is next for you? I mean, you've had such a remarkable career. Um, you know, and, and what is your life like in Atlanta? And how is it generative to this craft of observation and, and putting your thoughts to paper every day? How, how has that shifted? Well, I, I mean, I moved in the middle of a pandemic, so it's very hard to even know anything mm-hmm. right now. But, uh, but you know, a, a writer's life is very solitary. And, you know, you go out, you do your interviews, you go out, observe the world, and then you come back and you have to write alone and quiet. Um, so, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the impact will be. I do know that, you know, the the cadence of my writing is Southern already and, and being just l- listening to language in the South reminds me of things. And so that informs just the way the, the, the sound of the writing. Um, I don't know what was the other part of your question. <laughs> well, I, what comes next? I mean, I will say, I, I noticed in, in reading this, there is a kind of languidness to your words in this book that is different from the New York work. I have projects, but you can never talk about anything until it's done, done. So I can't talk about anything, but they're projects. <laughs> projects. Um, this is very Hollywood. Are you, are you sure you're not in a destination city doing all of this? Um, or are you doing this for Tyler Perry in Atlanta? <laughs> I, I predict there's going to be a Charles Blow, Tyler Perry collaboration. Um, that can only happen in the city that's too busy to hate. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, watch this space. Um, so thank you so much today for this conversation, Charles. This is really fantastic. We have been discussing The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. Um, it is a fantastic book. Um, will give you so much to think about, really make you truly rethink everything, including whether or not you need to live in New York City for one moment longer. <laughs> um, so thank you to Charles Blow for giving us such a provocative and interesting read for these really serious times. We are also grateful to the Bernard Osher Foundation and Marcus Books in Oakland, California, and to you, of course, our audience, for listening and participating in this event. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org events. I'm Melissa Murray from NYU, and thank you, and please stay safe. Join us November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.